Welcome to Women Wanting Women, where we explore topics that matter to women like us. We talk about being a woman, attracting women, and becoming more powerful women by developing more self-confidence and always reaching for the next level in our self-actualization. I'm your hostess, lesbian love coach, Jordana Michelle. And if you're not already with the woman of your dreams and you're ready to finally find her so you could be best friends who learn and grow together and share dreams together and have adventures together and share passionate intimacy together, then also check out my website, womenwantingwomen.com because it's packed with resources that can help you, including my guide to quickly and easily eliminating rejection from your life, a how-to guide for finding your lesbian soulmate, a quiz to find out what qualities the woman of your dreams will find most attractive about you when you meet her, a report that explains the three biggest mistakes most women make when coming out and how to avoid them, and a matchmaking survey you can fill out in case I already know the woman of your dreams. All of that is free at womenwantingwomen.com. But before we go any further, I have a question. How well do you know your own body's process of arousal? The crazy thing is that we're born with bodies that are capable of experiencing spectacular states of arousal. But since sex and masturbation are kept private in most cultures, most of us never get actual training in how to access the full range of pleasure we're capable of. And whether due to cultural shame, trauma, or some other kind of mental or physical blockage, it's not uncommon for some women to never experience arousal at all. And that's a big deal, because sexual intimacy is an important part of love and relating. And if we don't know how to access our arousal, that blockage can get in the way of connecting the way we want to connect with the women we date. That's why in this episode of Women Wanting Women, I interview Pamela Samuelson, a sexological body worker who's trained to work hands-on with women, helping them to locate and explore and enhance their own pattern of arousal. Pam is a sex educator who literally gets in there with her clients so they can learn to experience the full extent of the pleasure their bodies are capable of experiencing. Her perspective is super interesting, and this is important stuff. So I hope you enjoy my interview with Pamela Samuelson. Pam, mm -hmm. thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad to be able to have this conversation. And it's so cool the way that we met through who I believe are two of the most magical humans I've ever known. 100%. Justin and Zoe. Yeah. And so anyone who comes from them is good in my book. But since they introduced us and in preparing for the podcast and doing my research, uh, this turned out even better than I could have hoped for when I asked Justin to introduce me to some cool people for the podcast. So let's start with just explaining what it is that you do. Sex sexological body worker is how you would define yourself. Is that right? Yeah, that's one of the threads. For one sure. of the threads. Let's talk about it. Let's get into mm -hmm. it. Tell us the threads. Okay. So sexological body work as the first thread is... How do I describe psychological bodywork? Psychological bodywork is a form of hands-on somatic education, let's say. Like I am, my title is as a somatic educator or a somatic sex educator. So it is hands-on work and it is working with people who are coming to me to explore and heal and find out more about their bodies in a sexual capacity. 
So to explore arousal, to explore blocks to arousal, to stay really present in their body. If it's a person who tends to disassociate, that can be a big part of it is just actually staying present in sensation. And because I'm working therapeutically, a lot of sex bod practitioners aren't as focused on therapeutic applications as I am because I'm coming from a background as a somatics practitioner and a, and a structural body worker. I have people mostly coming in because something is the matter or there's something they want to address. And many CSBs, many certified sexological body workers are coming to their practice really from a more like exclusively pleasure focused angle, which is delightful. When I have a person come in who just like wants to find out more and isn't actually dealing with something that's gone haywire in their body or in their life, that's always really fun for me. But frequently I have people coming in who have vulvodynia and vaginismus and horrible menstrual cycles or don't want to be touched or are feeling really derailed from their arousal or can't reach what they would consider to be a climax or whatever. They just are having something that they, there is a problem and they're coming to me to try to find a solution to their problem. And so as a CSB, I am working really actively with folks who are on the table to make sure that they know and have an embodied experience of being in charge of what's happening to their body. So it's not just consent in the sense of may I do this to you? And then they say yes or no, or may I do that? It's really about what do they want? How do they feel about it? What feels like it's right for them rather than me enacting my ideas upon them and is just sort of an exploratory collaboration between us around what their body actually likes. I sometimes work with couples. That's also really fun when they've hit a plateau or a snag or one of them has an intense sexual trauma history is actually what's been showing up a lot lately. Couples who really want help because they're entering into a relationship together and they want help and guidance and containment and some very permissive and, and robust framing around what works, what might work, how to come to each other without the one of them who has a higher sex drive taking personally the lower sex drive or the, the limits of the other. Also, I work with a lot of people who are going through hormonal changes, a lot of women who are in perimenopause and menopause or postmenopause and have found that their sex drive has really changed, along with lots of other things with those hormonal shifts. It's been, I'm not anywhere near menopause, but I've witnessed now and a lot of people and a lot of my teachers have talked to me about the juiciness of that change, that it isn't the, the kind of common cultural narrative about, you know, you dry up and blow away, you'll never have sex or whatever, whatever that bullshit is about. That if, if the framing is there and the support is there to kind of ride through the hormonal changes, what it gives women who are comfortable and supporting themselves well is an incredible clarity and discernment and a lot of sexual fire, actually. There's a lot of arousal. It changes. It does change, but there's like a lot. I'm actually greatly looking forward to it at this point, having heard so much about it. That well, let's not that... rush the time too much. You've got a long no, way no. ahead of you. <laughs> no, there's no, there's no rush at all. But having now kind of worked with a lot of people and learned from a lot of people who have, who are on the other side of that, whatever worry I ever may have had from the dominant cultural narrative is gone because it's what I'm hearing about is just the most amazing sex. Like, oh my God, the sex I'm having in my fifties is incredible. The sex I'm having in my sixties is incredible. It keeps getting better. It keeps getting more subtle and exquisite and the orgasms are really intense. It's just like all kinds of beautiful stuff. 
And of course it's different person to person, but. Oh, I love that. Yeah. It's just remarkable. That's great news. Yeah. So psychological body work to be just in short is uh, a form of hands-on work, a form of body work that we call somatic sex education, which is about working with the arousal patterns and mindset and consciousness that any given person who is interested and wants to come in has around their body and their sexuality, their body specifically in a sexual capacity. Well, I just want to be clear, when we say somatic, it means touching, right? Something It means involving touch? That's a great question. Somatic literally means of the body. Soma is the body. So if it's when we're talking about somatic therapy, we're talking about generally a form of psychotherapy, which is why I don't use the word therapy. Somatic therapy is usually a form of therapy, psycho, some kind of psychotherapy that addresses the body or brings consciousness or awareness into the body. So it's not just talking. It's not just a strictly verbal therapy, but it's also like breathing and checking in. And sometimes there's a little bit of hands-on work with something like somatic experiencing or hokomi, but it's not body work in the sense that it's not working with structure. And what's so incredible about all of this is that... Can I, can I add something? Please. Great. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So in addition to doing one-on-one sessions with people as a sexological body worker, I also have been a sex educator for teens and for adults for like 20 years, which is rad. That's, that's my other favorite thing is actually not necessarily working one-on-one hands-on hands-in with people, but working with groups of people. And one of the ways that I do that is that I teach a workshop to anyone with an interior sexual anatomy called take back the speculum which is giving people the tools to access and control their own experience, specifically at the gynecologist, should they need to go. And this has been super relevant for people with sexual trauma histories in particular, and also um, just basically anyone who doesn't want people putting things in their body. What they learn to do in class, there's a big anatomy portion. So everyone gets schooled on just like the basics, not like the nuts and bolts of what a body with a vagina is, like what it is comprised of, the full arousal network, like everything, the full extent of the clitoris, the full everything broken down in a way that you never, ever get in school and just shown in full. And then there is a portion where I drop my pants and show the anatomy on my own body just to give some context. And then Everyone is given an opportunity to do that with each other if they want to, which is the, I call it the gallery that destroys all shame, which is for people, for women in particular, who don't sleep with women, that is often the first time they've ever seen another woman's vulva ever. I imagine. It's just a great and normalizing thing because we're raised on porn and on these like super normative images where all of the images that, like all of the images in the medical anatomy books are of white women. And they're all of cadavers because they're all anatomical drawings. So the images that we see, even from like a very clinical medical perspective. Are dead white women? Are all of, it's all one thing. It's all one kind of thing. And then when we see porn, especially produced porn, rather than the glorious panoply of amateur porn, which is everything and everyone. When we see produced porn, it's all the same kind of vulva. And the the thing that often gets brought up is that the, uh, Peggy Ornstein, who's this wonderful feminist writer, writes a lot about the rise in labiaplasty among women under the age of 25, which is just an aesthetic surgery. There's no, for most people, there's no medical reason to have labiaplasty. For some people, of course, there's like... So changing the outside look of your lips? Usually it is trimming the inner labia because somebody thinks that they're too long. And sometimes there's like, wow, this is chafing and I actually need to do this. But for the most part, it's about what you look like and not wanting people to see you because you think that your inner labia are abnormally long or something like this, which of course, in the range of human vulvas on this planet, it's not abnormal at all. I mean, if it's a problem, if you're trying to wear jeans and you can't, that's a problem. 
And I've read certainly accounts from people who have had labiaplasty and have been greatly relieved of their discomfort by it. And that, of course, is totally legit and valid. And I'm glad that that exists as an option for those those people. But for everybody else, it's about like having what Peggy Orenstein calls the Barbie clamshell, which apparently is the most sought after look where the outer labia kind of cover the inner labia. And this is supposed to be what all vulvas look like. And people get surgery to look like that. That's crazy. People get surgery to look like that. I've communicated with at least one person for sure, and probably with others who have had labiaplasties and who have had a great compromise in the sexual sensation that they experience as a result of them from nerve damage or from scar tissue. It's, it's like a whole thing. I hate that. I hate it also. But there are things that I love, which include the work that you're doing. And I want to get back to that because it's so important. And I think it's so interesting to take back the speculum, this, this, this gallery that ends all shame, that destroys all shame, really understanding our anatomy. What's funny is I am a queer woman and I've, I, I thought I really understood the female anatomy as well as anyone possibly could until I read the book by, I think it's Sherry Winston. Oh, it's so great. Woman's Anatomy of Desire or something like that. Woman's Anatomy of Arousal. It's awesome. Woman's Anatomy of Arousal. And I was blown away. I learned so much that I didn't even think was possible for me to learn. I picked up the book being like, oh, please, you know, I'm a lesbian. I know all this. And And then I was deeply humbled. It's a great so yeah, so it's 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 important what you're doing, this idea of taking back the speculum and really understanding our anatomy in a deeper way, because we're not taught that. Um, the last part of the workshop is that everyone sees me give myself a cervical self-exam, I insert a speculum and show everyone my cervix, and then show everyone else how to do that, so that whenever people go into the gyno, if they don't want people putting things in them, which plenty of us don't. They could do it themselves and open it up for the... Thanks. I've got, thanks. I'll take that. I've got this. And they do it for themselves and they know how to show their own cervix. And then they let the doctor know when they're ready for their swab. And that's kind of the end of it. Oh, wow. Which for people who have experienced any kind of sexual violence is really helpful is a big deal. And also the speculum was developed as a tool of domination. The person who invented it was experimenting unesthetized on his slaves. Like it's, this is uh, J. Marion Sims, whose statue was just taken down in New York a couple of years ago. So there is there is the vibration in the tool itself of this being how it was designed and how it's been used for you know a long time. Yeah, and there's just something so empowering about being able to handle things ourselves. Like I don't, you know, we don't. No one else dresses us and undresses us. We can undress ourselves if there's certain. The more we can take certain physical things on for ourselves, the more empowering it is regardless. And it's not like a speculum is so comfortable. It's not comfortable, but it's a hell of a lot more comfortable doing it yourself than it is letting somebody else do it to you. I'll tell it, you. I, I, I love it. I never even heard of this idea. And it's, it's amazing. That's such a great workshop. Did you create this workshop? Was this all your idea? No, this is very much based on the work of my mentor, who's a woman named Carol Downer, who's about to turn 86 next week, who lives here in LA and who was one of the founders of the Federation of Feminist Women's Health Centers. She started a health center here in LA with a group of other women um, before Roe v. Wade even passed. I think it was like 1970, maybe 71. Well, she sounds amazing. She's fabulous. And she's been doing that work, that that self-exam work. She calls it self-help groups since then. Oh, wow. That's going back. Okay. Yeah. I love all of that. But I was really, I'm even more moved though about you helping people to understand their arousal patterns and having outside help for this thing that for so many people, I mean, I guess for some people it probably comes really easily, but especially as a queer woman, I remember being 
hooking up with guys when I was younger and not and feeling so uncomfortable. And yeah, it became a lot easier once I just started sleeping with women. Things that used to be a problem were then just not even, you know, those issues were taken off the table. But I understand the, the idea of the struggle. I understand how stressful that can be because that was stressful for me. My problem was easily solved by switching to women instead of guys. But some people, the problem isn't as easily solved in those ways. And there wasn't there. I, I didn't know of any outside help. I might have wanted to seek out something like that. And it's so incredible that now there's this, is this, how long has this been going on? Has there always been work like this? How did you get in? Yeah, I have so many questions about it, but. Um, sexological body work has existed as a certified, like a state, California state certified practice, I think for 14 years now, maybe. It's recent. 15 years. Yeah, I got certified in 2015. And I think it at that point had been going on for 12 years, so. Not very long, in any case. Yeah, no, we're talking about some recent stuff, but the importance of people exploring and healing and finding about um, finding out about their bodies in a sexual capacity, these things that you speak of, uh, the ability to stay present during sex, um, you know, exploring what, what our body's like and knowing how and knowing what to do and doing it in the presence of someone else who can actually help. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. extraordinary. I think... Yeah, I mean, I think there has been a lot of sort of like group sexual exploration. I mean, the whatever, the sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s was very male dominated. And we have all the stories about that, you know, that the sexual revolution really benefited a lot of men. And one of the things, just to bring it back in, one of the things that Peggy Orenstein writes about in Girls and Sex when she interviews, so the book is amazing because it is sort of... Uh, the chapters are kind of according to theme, but she... Which book is this? This is called Girls and Sex. It's this. I happen to have two copies right by my bed, and I would be so happy to mail you one if you want to read I do. I would. Thank you. It's this book, which those of you listening won't see, but Jordana can see. It's pink. It's I pink and it. white. Navigating and sex. the complicated new landscape. Wow. Yes. So she goes across the country and interviews, I think, 70 young women between like 16 and 22 or something like that. What was she asking them about? She was sitting down with them with a tape recorder or whatever kind of recorder, digital recorder, and asking them very frank questions about their sex lives and their experiences about sex and how they experience uh, partner sex and how they experience solo sex and how they feel about partners and what's typical for them and how they just how they feel and think about the whole thing and basically just ask questions and let them talk. And they talk very frankly with her. They're very forthright about their experiences. And one of the things that she notes that I found really alarming and very illuminating in terms of just who I'm seeing in practice, because I'm not working with teenagers in one-on-one practice, I'm working with adults. And so this, this, these are patterns that are entrenched and continue throughout life, is that post-sexual revolution, women feel entitled to have sex but they do not, we, I should say, do not necessarily feel entitled to enjoy sex. Wow. So the stigma around being slutty, especially with younger women, seems to be mostly gone in, you know, at least in these kind of urban settings where she was talking to people. The, the cultural norm at this point is to be having lots of sex, but the, their description of the pleasures of sex are largely focused on the pleasures of their largely male partners. This is not anywhere near as much of a problem for women who are sleeping with other women. 
as we know, the orgasm gap does not apply to women who sleep with women. No, but we. Thanks. But what does apply is that we're living in a world where women aren't necessarily taught about how to yeah. feel and enjoy sex and how to bring ourselves to arousal and how to bring ourselves to orgasm. These are things we're left to figure out by ourselves. And Right, and we're not even encouraged. We're not even encouraged to explore for ourselves. Like this was something, when I used to teach sex ed for Planned Parenthood, it was something, it was a place where I went really off script. That I was teaching an anatomy lecture and then I got to take anonymous questions at the end. You know, kids would write their questions on pieces of paper and pass them to the front. And, and like who left Pam in front of the kid? Like who left Pam in charge? Yeah. Yeah. Luckiest classroom ever. It was like 14-year-old boys who were like, miss, where is the G-spot? And I'm like, okay, let's go. I'll show you where the G-spot is. And I would like describe to them like exactly where it is. Like, okay, you do this and da-da-da. And you're, you know, if you have one or two fingers inside the vagina of your girl and you kind of curl your fingers towards her belt, like around the back of her pubic bone, like here's the pubic bone and you'll feel a little change in texture. And that's the, you know, the G spot or the G crest, whatever, like that's, that's where you want to go. And she will let you know, you know, miss, how do I be a good lover for my girl? And I'm like, you ask her what she wants and then you do that. Exactly the way she said. Oh, it's great. And you keep doing that until she tells you something different. But it was like, yes, masturbate. It's some of the best sex you'll ever have. It is how you learn how, you like to be touched is by touching yourself and really explore. Like there's all of this really juicy anatomy that you might not necessarily realize unless you take the time. And how old and were these kids you were talking to? 14. That's they were in ninth perfect, grade. So, and of course at 14, like some of them look like children and some of them look like, like grown ass people because you're in that crazy window in puberty where it's like either really hit or it hasn't quite hit yet. So there was a huge range of sexual experience in the room. Some kids were obviously already sexually active. I had different girls come up to me and say, I think I'm pregnant. What do I do? Like, all right, this thing happened. The content broke. What do I do? Whatever. Like people would come, like come grab me after class as the only adult that they could clearly see was down to have that conversation with them and wouldn't judge them and wouldn't like turn them in or call their mom or whatever. You know, there so clearly needs to be more than what's being done. I don't, I don't know what, you know, for, I don't know at what age, I don't see why not tell a 14-year-old where the G-spot is. Why not? I don't know. Of course not. There, we should have, yeah, I mean, especially girls should know. Why shouldn't guys yeah. know? If they're going to be sleeping with girls, they also should know. But that's absolutely what, you know, sex ed is, is not how to be a good lover. That's not, and no. why, and it should be, right? Probably. It's part of, I mean, it, should, it absolutely should be. Not just how to be a good lover, but. Sexual wellness is part of general wellness. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I describe my practice as being two-thirds therapeutic and one-third sex work, but that's only if you consider that sex work isn't good for you, <laughs> you know, if you consider that, I mean, if you don't believe that sexuality is an integral part of human health, then sex work is this, like, dirty, <laughs> ridiculous thing, but I think differently. I think that sex, sex and sexuality and sexual pleasure is a fundamental part of human health, a central part, and that not having access to that is a serious problem. So yeah, I mean, I, I do, I do still teach sex ed to teenagers. I just did a private class for a group of teens, I don't know, a month and a half ago, which was amazing. There were 13 year olds in the room and there were 18 year olds in the room who obviously are worlds apart in terms of their experience, but they supported each other. They totally dug each other. The 13 year olds were stoked to hear from the 18 year olds about their experience. The 18 year olds were able to fully support and commiserate with the 13 year olds about their particular dramas. Like it was just, it was beautiful. And everyone had basically the same questions because nobody knows this stuff. And it was a lot of the same, like, here is the anatomy of your arousal. 
check it out. Here's the full extent of your clitoris. Let's look at these medical slides. Let's look at these illustrations. And then like a lot of questions about like, what about birth control? What about this? What about that? And it was, it, it is such a blessing to be able to just honestly answer those questions because it's, it is firmly my opinion. And this goes for kids, younger kids, as well as teens, that at the point that the question exists, they deserve the answer. I would never put on a kid or put on a teenager something that they weren't ready for and weren't asking for. But at the point that they're asking, you got to tell them. So that's, that's been uniformly my advice to parents who are like, how do you know, how do I get into this? I'm really uncomfortable with all of this. I don't like talking about this. Nobody talked to me about this. And I haven't like quite burst the bubble of that. What do I do with my kid? And I'm like, well, you answer their questions. Because there's so much suffering that will come from not knowing it. When you think about even just the ability to maintain good relationships, if yeah. your entire, if you don't have the, your own sexual arousal handled in a way that you can share it with another person, then that's going to severely hinder your ability to relate. And, and It can, you, for sure. And then there's also all of the awkwardness that might come before that of the fear of when that happens. I know when I was dating guys, that was part of the issue. It's not an issue now that I'm dating women. I'm so lucky that my problem was simply that I was uh, gay. gay, trying to make things work <laughs> with guys. But I mean, there was on any given date, there was so much fear and anxiety leading up to the moment when I knew he would kiss me. Mm -hmm. And if other people don't have a handle over their own sexual arousal or they're, they're still have blockages there and don't know how to overcome it, then I imagine even if they're with the, the, a person of the correct gender mm -hmm. and even if they're, in, they're engaging in the right orientation, there could still be so much blocking their ability to really connect, I imagine. Yeah. So it's such important work. And because we are only taught about the male arc of arousal, I mean, this is part of like the misogyny that's present in all things, is that the male arc of arousal, which is very linear, is the only type of arousal that anyone has been taught about. And again, just to go back to this, because I'm, I'm, an, I'm an anatomy nerd, you go to an anatomy book, there's a picture of a flaccid penis and an erect penis. Nowhere in any medical book that I have ever seen to this day, and I have looked a lot, is there any imaging of a non-erect clitoris and an erect clitoris. So to tell a group of women that their clitoris gets fully erect and that they have as much erectile tissue in their pelvises as any man does is mind-blowing, but it's true. It's just differently arranged. I know. I, until I read uh, Sherry Winston's book, I had no idea. It's so interesting. Um, all right, so let's get into it. What is then the female arc of arousal? It's just very different because the, because the sensitive tissues are arranged differently. Not to mention that, of course, the mind and the, and the processing, the nervous processing of a person who has been born and socialized as a female is different than the nervous processing of a person who's been born and socialized as a male culturally and in terms of just the, the hardware of it. Can you explain how? The, the female arc of arousal in the way that with a person with a penis, the stimulation to the penis that leads to arousal and orgasm is one way. The stimulation applied to the body and the mind and the soul and the heart of a person who has a vulva is has to respond to the tissue to what's there, to the wiring that's there. And because the external clitoris, so talking about like the shaft and the glands and the hood of the clitoris that everyone knows is there has been kind of described for you know more than a century at this point as like the mini penis or whatever 
treating that like it's a mini penis when in fact it is not a mini penis at all is a ignores the rest of the erectile tissue ignores the rest of what is there which is extensive and glorious and amazing and waiting to be touched and it creates this kind of thing well like oh well if i treat this like a penis it should respond like a penis but of course it doesn't because it's not the same it's not the same anatomy so you're talking about stimulating just that one little piece as opposed to stimulating all the other parts of the clit as opposed to responding to the clit as though it's a clit and not somebody's dick like it's not it's not the same body and it doesn't respond the same way but there's this kind of correlation where people are like oh it's just a little tiny penis so i'm just going to treat it like that and it should respond the same way and that is problematic because that's actually not how the female body is built and it is not how it responds and what's the narrative? What's the narrative that we see in porn? It's like there's some clitoral stimulation and then there's penetration and there's lots of penetration and it's hard and fast and then everybody comes and we go home. But that's not actually how heterosexual sex happens in life for most people. Most people with vulvas do not climax from penetration alone, but this is what we're shown over and over again. Most people with vulvas climax from external stimulation most people with vulvas and vaginas require external stimulation as well as internal stimulation, if there's any internal stimulation at all. 70%-ish of people with vulvas climax from external stimulation. So if there is penetration, there needs at least you know, over two-thirds of the time to also be external stimulation. And some people, lots of people with vulvas, don't like penetration at all. And that may be from repeat bad experiences. And it may just be the way that that person is built. I know a small handful of exceptional women, not exceptional in, as though it's a positive, but like women who are an exception, who don't really like external stimulation. They like penetration. That's what they want. That's what gets them off. But for the most part, that is not the case. And because the external clitoris also, I mean, honestly, the external clitoris also, it's what I'm calling the external clitoris is the shaft and the glands. You can access the bulbs on either side of the vaginal opening underneath kind of like the outer labia. And I have felt on other women who are easily aroused there that that gets rock hard. The bulbs get rock hard, like as hard as any erect penis. So that's one thing. The legs are along the sits bones, which you can totally access with your hands. The only, I mean, the internal erectile tissues are the urethral sponge, which is... The, what we call the G-spot or the G-crest is part of the urethral sponge. And the A-spot or the anterior fornix, which is deeper, but is also part of the urethral sponge. Um, I've heard, although I have myself not experienced and so can't really speak firsthand, but it's worth mentioning that there is also some sort of cervical stimulation where actually stimulation in, like into the opening in the cervix, the os, can be very stimulating to some people. That has never been stimulating to me. So I've not been able to explore that enough to tell you about it. But I recently heard about that from another sex educator and was like, what? I have to know more. And then also what people call the P-spot, which is the perennial sponge, which is not erectile tissue, but is a kind of like little nest of, of blood vessels that's in the perineum between the vaginal opening and the anal opening is another place where a lot of stimulation can feel good. And when you're working with women, you're actually helping them, you're actually touching, right? Mm -hmm. So being certified in the state of California means that I am recognized by the state as someone who's doing somatic sex education. And with that, I am doing hands-on educational work with people to basically assist them, to support them in exploring their own bodies. 
So I'm touching them, they're touching themselves, I'm gloved. And with them to facilitate an experience for them, it's not about me at all. Like I have no needs in the course of a session. I'm not, I am, I am by no means offering anything more than my attention and my touch for the benefit of their learning more about themselves. And the support and the feeling like there's someone else there who knows what they're doing, who can help guide. I mean, it's so huge. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and that's most of it. That's most of it. I, I'm there. I mean, there's another part of psychological bodywork that I rarely do, but think is wonderful, which is just masturbation witnessing, where a person is arousing themselves and we're there to be present as a witness and to observe and to offer feedback about ways that they might touch themselves differently, like other things that they might explore or ways that they might be shutting themselves down, which I find incredibly beautiful as like a human to human offering and, and incredibly useful to a person who is really hung up in some aspect of their arousal. But most of what I do is kind of collaborative touch, like I'm touching, they're touching, and we're talking the whole time. And a lot of people who are coming to you, even though you would love the ones that to to just get better and have better orgasms you said you would love that but a lot of them are coming with some sort of something's going on for them yeah people are having people are facing an issue that they're not resolving with their partners and so then they come in to get another perspective and it's a really safe space it's very important to me as a practitioner that I never dominate the experience and I train other practitioners and that's a huge huge part of it because that's very different from most hands-on training where you're essentially like learning a protocol and then doing the protocol to people for money. For me and for those that I train, it's very much more about responding to what's actually happening for that person. And under this context, it would have to be. Oh, it has to be. Absolutely. I mean, there are, no, I mean, there are protocols that are taught in sex pod, like try this and try that and try the other thing, but it's not ever like you will do this strict sequence of things and then there will be a result. No, that's just not how it works. That's not how pussy works. No, No. I mean, and that's the thing I think is that vaginas, vulvas don't like being dominated in that way. And that take, I mean, to, to say that I say in that way, because I, that could branch into a whole discussion of BDSM when of course, pussies do like to be dominated in certain ways, according to agreements and proclivities, but pussies don't like to be told what they like. I don't know anybody that likes to be told what they like. So there is an aspect of listening that I think is missing in the kind of popular narrative around sex that I'm really trying to get to with everyone that I talk to and work with. So do you have advice for women who, you know, might be in another part of the world and may never be able to find their way to your table, who might be struggling with not knowing how to bring themselves to arousal or who might be struggling with trauma or pain or issues that you know, if you had the ability to be in front of them, you'd be able to heal for them, but without. I mean, I don't heal anybody, just to be clear. People are very much healing themselves in the presence of a loving and skillful witness, but I'm not doing shit to people in that way. Which is so good because, you know, it would be easy to think, oh, I don't have someone like Pam to go to, but understanding that even if you had Pam to go to, you'd still be healing yourself and, and self-healing is so possible. Yeah. And do you believe that's true no matter what they've been through? I do believe it's true no matter what they've been through. And I also don't think that it's ever useful to come at a body. It's never useful to address the body as though it's a problem to be fixed. You know, that just doesn't give the wisdom, the deep, deep wisdom of the body. It's appropriate due. 
if there is a shutdown, it is almost certainly an appropriate response to something in that person's experience. Right. The body's doing the right thing by protecting you in that way. Yeah, absolutely. The body is limiting stimulation because stimulation has shown to be dangerous in some way. And the way to correct that is by letting the body know that now it's not dangerous anymore. And now the new thing that's correct is to open up in a way that allows pleasure because in this new context, pleasure is also correct for this, for now. Yes, and at the pace and in the way that is that feels safe and appropriate for that person. And that might take a long time. You know, It really depends on how willing that person is to let go of some of their control, like how safe that feels to them to, to surrender a little bit to something that is happening or how much control they need to maintain. And that is the right pace for that person. You know, you can't go faster than that or it becomes violent. Like it becomes aggressive that you're like overriding the body's very natural and very clever defense mechanisms faster than they're willing, faster than that body is willing to give them up. I think we have to work at the edge of safety. We can't explore freely unless there is that felt safety because there's no play. There's no play without safety because we can't explore freely. We can't, yeah, we can't be at play. Like we can't enjoy and play and, and feel, feel pleasure unless we feel safe. There's no access to that on any level. And the play is not frivolous. It's, it's an important part of life. This isn't. Well, what does that even mean? Frivolous? That it's meaningless? No. Well, I think that this we talked about the entitlement to have sex and not be considered slutty but also just the importance of that play the importance of that pleasure i don't think it's been a part of our cultural fabric of really valuing that that i don't know if it's if it's valued enough considering how really important it is to health and to relationships and to connection and to self-confidence and in and of itself why is it not important enough just in and of itself that pleasure is important? And just because it's awesome. Yeah, just because it's awesome. Yeah, why? Well, I don't know why. I don't know why that's not something we're taught, right? We're, we're taught to work hard and... It's all very head first. Yeah. You know, it's like from the neck down, nothing is really as meaningful, and I disagree with that. Yeah, clearly, because that's what your life is about. Um Can we talk a a little bit about couples that hit their plateau? Because I think that especially with queer women, there is a fear of things like what they call lesbian bed death, whether or not it's a myth. Lesbian bed death. You've heard of it. Uh Uh-huh. (laughs) Uh-huh. Yeah, just just to to ground, you do have a female partner, correct? I do. Yes, I do. And a male one. And a male one. And a male one. And is it just two partners or are you also open in other ways? Um, I have two partners and I have a real lack of time otherwise. So (laughs) I have, I have a four-year-old and a male partner who is my darling and my baby daddy and a female partner who is long distance and who I am on the phone with every day. Um, and who is my, my honey and my soulmate. And I think I would love to be, and have been kind of eyeballing these all female play parties that happen in LA and that I've been wanting to go to, but I just haven't had a fucking minute to go. (laughs) So that'll happen as you know, in the way that happens when children grow up and you suddenly have the pieces of your former life return one by one, there will be opportunities to go hopefully in the next year. So you have permission for that within your relationships. It's not just, Oh yeah. There's no, there's, I mean, it's not so much about permission as just like, I want to do this thing and then, okay, great. And listening to everybody's feelings about that. But yeah, 
but that is, yeah, I want to, I want to, that is not a world that I've spent a lot of time in is this kind of world of like organized uh, sex events. And I'm really, really curious about different parties and different groups and you know, like different vibes and like what all that might mean and look at, look like, I mean, what it might all mean and look like. So I'm, I'm hoping to go soon. And there's one here in LA that looks really fun. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I hope you get to go, but I do want to talk about advice for couples who hit their plateaus mm-hmm. because I think that that's a common, that can be a common experience. Well, I, I think it's a common experience regardless of the, or, or the genders and orientations of the partners. Mm-hmm. But I think it's a fear that because of that, um, the meme of the idea that there exists such a thing as lesbian bed death, whether or not it's true, it, it can be a fear sometimes. So do you have advice? Yeah, I do. And of course, the, the general advice is, it's hard to give advice about that because it's so specific to each couple. It's so specific to certain dynamics. The thing that I see the most often is when when couples come in and they're like, we've, we've bottomed out, help us, <laughs> how do we do this? Is that th- there have been things along the way that have not been addressed properly that are emotional in nature that are making intimacy very challenging or, you know, are are setting things up so that to be intimate requires a hard override of all sorts of feelings. And sometimes talking those things out, even though it's uncomfortable and can bring up a lot of shit for both partners, is what actually reconnects people and makes intimacy possible. So that's always a big one, like a really big one. And it's, it can be huge things that people are like, yeah, of course I lost my mom and, you know, we, or we lost the baby or whatever. Like there can be really intense things that are concrete and that seem to legitimately deserve the grief that they got. And then there's lots of other things that are, you know, the thousand tiny cuts that aren't as concrete and that people are like, what's the matter with me? And I'm like, you've been dealing with this thing, low grade, but consistent for four years, of course, you're exhausted and tapped out and don't want to have sex. Another thing that comes up a lot, and this has been coming up a lot lately in my practice, is people who have stopped drinking or stopped smoking weed. They've stopped self-medicating in the way that they had for, in a couple of instances, decades. And upon becoming sober, have found that their sex drive has completely gone away because they required that self-medication to allow anyone close to them and to a person so far, and I'm not saying that this is always what happens, but this is what I've now observed. All of those people have discovered that they had repressed memories of sexual trauma from their childhoods. And they're all like now deep in processing that in different ways. And that has made their drop in desire make a lot more sense to them. Although it's still just as uncomfortable, especially for those people who are partnered whose partners are then like, what the fuck is this? Like, what, you know, what am I supposed to do? I'm waiting around for you. I'm like, yeah, you're waiting around because your partner is a person with an incest history or whatever other kind of sexual trauma history. And you must now learn how to deal with a person who you and they now know is a person with a trauma history, which is different. It's different than dealing with a person without a trauma history. Those of us, and, and I'm, I'm among them, I do not have a sexual trauma history and that's not how my body responds. I don't go into a freeze. A lot of people who were traumatized, especially young, have a very profound freeze response that was part of what helped them to survive that. 
you know, that is uh, in evolutionary terms, that's the most ancient nervous system response that human beings have to a, to like a very intense threat. And even though sexual trauma is incredibly confusing, it's very, it's a very layered thing. And in some ways is much more layered than other kinds of abuse. That physical response to a threat persists. And upon not having the kind of chemical override of being drunk or being high, for a lot of people upon becoming sober, they're like, oh, I've like, I was literally repressing something with my drinking or my smoking. And that's why my sex drive has dropped. So for the partners of those people, yeah, it's absolutely a conversation about like, right, you need to now learn, you're on a new learning curve now of how to be with your loved one in this way, because now it's different. So how do you then, if you have a partner who's suffered from sexual trauma? It's about going, I mean, a lot of it is about going really slow. A lot of it is about reestablishing safety. A lot of it is about really having to let their body unwind from the trauma, which is another part of what people come to me for in practice is just to be really present in the, in the trauma and in the feelings in a safe environment and at the pace that works for them. It's like, how is it to have very slow, very attuned sexual stimulation when you know that you're not doing it to please anybody else? This is entirely about you. And that at any moment you, you are making the call. That's too much. I want to stop. That's bringing up too much. I want to stop. It feels it's making me really uncomfortable. I want to stop. And to know that that's really okay. And to start to just slowly increase the bandwidth that that person has around, around feeling, around sensation and stimulation is how I work with it primarily. Just like what, how, how far do you feel able and safe to go into this sensation and into this experience? And then can we hang out at the edge? This is all about what works for you. And the other thing that comes up actually a lot is people who are, and to go back to this, people who are like, this is a problem. I want to fix it. I want to go back to the self that I was before. There's something wrong with me. I'm dysfunctional. I'm fucked up. And having to really like again and again, come back to you are a fucking miracle. You are an amazing person. And you've had some really shitty things happen to you. And your struggle and your pain is part of the miracle you are. And there's space for everything. And we're just going to go really slow. This is not about doing, you know, it's, I think Pema Chodron calls it the violence of self-improvement. Like, we're just not going to do that. We're not going to override your body. We're going to stay with your body. We're going to stay in your body. And I'm right here with you. And I am a mountain for you. I'm not going anywhere. You can't scare me. This experience is not too freaky for me. I'm not going to walk away. I'm not going to abandon you. I'm going to stay with you. And we both know what the container of time is. We're going to be together during this time. And we're just going to stay with the sensation. And you lead. I think that will work great for someone that is having trouble receiving. Mm -hmm. But there are a lot of partners that complain that the problem is their partner doesn't want to give. Right. So that is a different, that's a whole different thing. The, the obstacles to giving, and there are, again, this is going to be particular to each person, but the obstacles to giving often are that the person who's giving just doesn't know what the fuck they're doing feels really uncertain, feels really uh, like a lack of confidence in their giving. There are, of course, people who are just not interested in pleasing anybody else, and that is a whole other problem. But at the point that somebody is seeking help, I have to assume that they are interested enough that they're seeking help, so they must want to learn more about that. But not knowing how to give, and this, again, goes back to what you were saying about, like, yeah, we don't receive any 
education or training as young people about how to be good lovers. Is it not knowing how to give? That's what you called it. I'm, I'm pointing towards a general, yeah, a lack of interest. And it could come from not wanting, but I'm pointing towards, I have friends and they, the way they phrase it is my partner is a total bottom or only a bottom. Uh huh. I'm, maybe that's true, you know. They just, but it's it seems like a sort of lack of interest in the pleasure of the partner, and I'm wondering, does it have to be that way? It doesn't have to be that way, and that that I mean, that's a whole dynamic where there are people who really only do enjoy bottoming, and there are people who only do enjoy topping, and those people are great matches for each other. I am very switchy, and so in any partner that I have who's going to stick around, I require somebody who's able to switch. Like that's, that's what's a good match for me. So I think some of it is about finding an appropriate match, finding an appropriate partner, given the, the makeup and the desires that you have. Because there really are people who do not particularly want to receive. They only want to do. They want to completely control. And to me, like topping and bottoming isn't so much about giving and receiving because different things are being given and received in either role, in either position. But there are people who like quite literally want to control the entire experience and those are very toppy people. And there are people who absolutely just want to submit to whatever is being done to them. And those are very bottomy people. Right. And then what I was sort of asking about, I'm thinking of a few different couples that I know and a few different friends of mine saying, my partner is down if I want to do stuff to her, but otherwise she's just not that interested. It's sort of a lack of a... Right. So that then that would, for me, would turn into a question about like, are these two people's sex drives well-matched? Because if it's just that one person has a lot more desire than the other, so they always end up being the initiator, that's a different thing than a person who's like a top and a person who's a bottom. Right. What I'm saying is not only is it that one is initiating, but then the other one is so disinterested that all she'll really be open to is, is receiving. Right. Because it's right. So there's a couple really great books that I would love to recommend. To, to these particular couples. Yeah, let's hear it. To these particular couples. One of them is called Come As You Are, which is written by a woman named Emily Nagoski, who is a fucking genius. It's a really great book. It's super accessible and is very like cleverly written. And it talks about, it basically offers a model for arousal and excitation where she describes it in terms of a, like a kind of a dual model where there's like a gas pedal and there's a brake pedal. And some people have a very, very sensitive gas pedal and are high arousal. And some people have a much less sensitive gas pedal and they are lower arousal. Some people have a very sensitive brake where any stimulation that starts to happen is working against this kind of um, intensity of, of shutdown. And some people have a very, very low sensitivity brake and those are people who don't have a lot of filters or a lot of, I hesitate to use the word discernment, but they don't have a lot of like limits around what is sexually exciting. And between the two of these, which I think is a much more useful model than just like high sex drive, low sex drive as like a single discussion, but really kind of having a more nuanced discussion around it can be very helpful in helping couples to figure out how it is that they can best come to each other to both get what they want. Yeah, because they're, I think that sounds good to have a different sort of technology, even if the partner may not in, inherently be the most well-matched, where there's a feeling of not wanting to necessarily separate once you find someone you're reasonably happy with due to the fear that maybe mm. 
there are, this is why I walk around always saying there are hot lesbians everywhere because I don't want people to be making partnership decisions out of fear that there won't be somebody better. But at the same time, sometimes we just absolutely love someone and the fact that you're not well matched, mm-hmm. matched sexually can be frustrating and disappointing but not necessarily entirely fatal to the relationship if there's enough enough other things that are amazing. Right. You know, I've also had the best sex of my life with someone that I really wasn't matched with emotionally at all. And other yep. times where I've had wonderful emotional connection with partners that sexually it wasn't as amazing as it was emotionally. So I've had both ends of that spectrum. Mm-hmm. And I've seen friends, I've seen friends, I've seen clients, I've seen people choose partners where maybe there are there's every reason to be together even if the if their sex life isn't as amazing and so it's good to know there is this technology and that you recommend this book I'll let them know come as you are come as you are another book that I would recommend really strongly for anyone who is discovering or is already working with a sexual trauma history either themselves or their partner I would recommend that both partners read a book called Healing Sex by a woman named Stacy Haynes Stacy with an i H, and it's also Haynes with an I. So it's S-T-A-C-I and Haynes is H-A-I-N-E-S. It is a really, really beautiful book. It is, in my opinion, the best of its kind that I've come across, at least, for really providing a lot of information and permission around reclaiming sexuality after reclaiming sexuality and, and uh, desire and control of your sex life if you are dealing with especially an early like a, like a, like a childhood trauma history. So I, I, I have a question though, before I forget about when you're working with women on the table, um, do you, do you help them bring them to arousal if they don't know how, like, can you, do you help them learn to orgasm if they don't know how? Yeah, I do. So women who have felt that they were inorgasmic and didn't know how to bring themselves to orgasm can come to you and you were able to to open that gateway for them. I'm able to offer the tools that I have, which are not by, by any means like all of the things, but the tools that I have are attentive touch and attentive communication and attunement. And there's always, there's always something I find so far, there's always something that's in the way. So the more that I can be with someone it, in the presence of the thing that's in the way, the easier it's going to be to communicate with it and work with it and and start to find ways around it or past it. What's in the way? I mean, it depends what's in the way. Is it a past experience? Is it uh, having been raised Mormon? Is it having been raised Catholic? Is it uh, the voice of their mother in their head? I mean, it could be any number of different things, but there is usually something that's in the way. It's, it's, uh, it is almost always some experience from the past. The nature of the experience varies a lot. It's like, oh, I got walked in on while I was masturbating when I was nine and shamed or, oh, I was, or whatever. Like there's, there is a, there's a freeze response that's built into arousal or some sort of non-parasympathetic dominant response that's built in along the way. And we, the more we can come into contact with that and start to like build more experience in present time around arousal. And it's that same process of just increasing bandwidth and increasing awareness and feeling for what feels good and me really responding to their direction. And I think underneath it all also has to be some degree of underlying faith that it's going to work for them. Yeah, of course. Because I think that if someone shows up feeling as if their pussy just doesn't work or that orgasm won't be possible for them, it'll be harder to get there. There needs to be that underlying faith. 
Well, I mean, if a person is constantly shooting themselves down while they're trying something new, then yeah, of course, it doesn't matter what they're doing. Mm -hmm. What about people who are addicted to their vibrators, for example, and want to have more of an ability to come without their vibrator? So do you have a meditation practice? You do? Mm -hmm. How long have you been meditating? I learned to meditate sometime around 2012. Okay, so having my, my experience is of having a sitting meditation practice. And I started when I was 14 and I tried to teach myself and I struggled for six years and then I went and got proper instruction when I was 20 and I lived in India for almost a year. And my discovery of actually having like a dedicated, hardcore, twice a day meditation practice was of the plasticity and malleability of my perception and of my experience. And in that experience and that happening to me, and then in, you know, working with different sexual practices, I worked with a Taoist teacher for a couple of years and did the exercises and so on that I was given by that teacher and discovered that my sexual responses are also you know, surprise, surprise, are also incredibly malleable and plastic and changeable with different practices. So that is my foundation in knowing that everyone has that capacity. I'm not special. I'm not an exception to that rule. Everyone has that capacity and that in just in terms of the nervous system, that if you have a habit, if you have a sexual habit, that is the way, and everybody has this, that this is the way that you know how to come. This is the way that you know you can make yourself come. It's the fastest way. It's the most effective way. This is just what you're going to do. And this, I think, is part of what leads couples into a rut, too. It's just like, we are doing the same thing that we've always done because we know that this works. And then there is a real, like, trepidation around trying new things because it might not work and we don't know. And, may, you know, there, there, again, is this kind of sense of scarcity and a lack of play around that. When there is a certain depth of intimacy, there is also a real clinging to safety. This is something that Esther Perel talks about really, really, really beautifully. If you're not familiar with her work, I recommend checking her out. She's the dopest. All of her stuff is so good. It's so, it's so, um, she's just so fucking smart and is connecting things that having heard them now, I'm like, oh, right. I've always known that, but I've never heard anyone say it before. Um, that is part of where couples you know, fall into a kind of trap of doing the same thing over and over again. But I think that we do that on our own too. We do that in our own um, sort of sexual practices, our solo sex and the ways that we know that we can get ourselves off, the things that we find arousing become really habitual. And it is interesting and kind of like is a continuous learning curve for me to keep exploring different ways that I personally can be aroused and then also to bring that kind of openness to anyone that I'm with, anyone that I'm with either as a partner or anyone that I'm being present with as a client, just holding for them like that they also have that capacity for play and they also have that capacity for forming new habits. And in terms of the nervous system, it's like you have this kind of highway, you have this super highway of nervous activity that is comprised of like when you do something over and over again, what you have is a, a kind of very well-worn groove because it's the road that you're traversing constantly. That's the consistent way. And to start to explore a new habit, especially a new habit in your sensations and in your uh, kind of response, your arousal, you are like building a little tiny trail right next to the superhighway. And then you take that a couple times and it starts to get a little more worn and 
you take it again and it starts to become a little more familiar and it starts to become something that you can refer to. And the superhighway is always there. It's not going anywhere. But you start to sort of build a preference for and build an attunement for yourself in these other ways and to build new habits. And this is always possible. I mean, anyone who's ever stopped smoking knows that. Anyone who's ever, you know, changed their diet knows that, that you can... Then you can create a new habit. Work with habits on, on a number of different levels, but that in terms of like having an embodied enjoyment of a new habit, it takes a minute. You know, I mean, this is the same thing with, you know, any number of different kinds of practices with affirmations. I was going to say that, that when I was, when I learned about how to use mantras to change my beliefs, at first I thought that that would never be possible. But now that I've done that, now that I've used mantras to change my belief more than once in my life and actually change who I am as a person by using mantras, I can see how what you're talking about in terms of setting a new groove sexually, that at first it might feel strange and at first it might not even feel possible, but with that committed practice like a meditation, what you're referring to, um, I could see how then that could really be possible and how that could help then couples that get into the wrong groove or even individuals wanting to Mm -hmm. explore more exciting, better sex, solo sex life. Right. Yes. So the, the steps, like the necessary things in that are that in order to, in order to set a new groove, you have to explore and you have to practice the thing that you're exploring over and over again to rehabituate in a different way. In order to explore and rehabituate, you have to feel safe enough to do so because without safety, there's no play. So creating the safety, mm-hmm. taking doing the exploration and then doing it and practicing it over and over and over again to build the groove. Yes. Until you break the old pattern and and get used to this new activity. It's not even about breaking the old pattern or breaking the habit. It's about establishing a new preference. You know what I mean? It's not about like going cold turkey. Like I will never, I mean, and I am a person, I was addicted to a vibrator. It's a problem. It is a problem. I was fully, and I was really young. I found my mom's like back massager or whatever the fuck. Oh, that thing's big, strong thing. Those things are strong. It's like a Hitachi. It's a Hitachi magic wand. It's sold as a, as a back massager. It's exactly the same thing. I was fully into it. And that was how I made myself come for like three years. And then at a certain point I was like, I am never going to be able to enjoy touching myself or being touched by anyone else. And I threw it out the window of a moving car. (laughs) So I was like, this is the only way. But that's cold turkey. That was cold turkey. I don't know that that was necessary. Because now I can use a vibrator whenever the fuck I want to, you know? But it took rehabituating myself to a different kind of stimulation in order to re- like kind of return, return that to myself. So what did you go back to then from there? I went back. It was a while later. Like I, at that point, at the point that I got another vibrator, I No, no, had... without the vibrator, I'm saying like, what did you... Oh, what did there, I do? Well, you threw the, the, the vibrator out the car window. Uh-huh. Which is so extreme. Was it planned? Did you say, I'm going to go for a ride and like... Or were you, yes. or were you just driving and you had this? Yes. And now I'm like, I'm like terribly, I'm horrified that I did that because of littering, like Jesus fucking Christ. But I hope somebody found it, you know? And, and, and elect, electronic waste, no doubt. E-waste, not just anything. I know. That's really bad. Terrible. I was a, I was a teenager. I was the worst. I didn't know. Yeah. So in any case, I went back to touching myself with my hands. I got really geeked out on using both hands. And not just my right hand. I'm right-handed generally, although I'm kind of ambidextrous in other ways. But I really wanted to start using both hands. So I did that for a while. And then I think I reverted to using my right hand. And then I started having partnered sex, like not that long after. So I 
I kind of had, I felt a deep need to build back in to my body's uh, habits and preferences, the capacity to enjoy being touched without it being like a fucking car buffer, you know, without it being like this big vibrating object, just because it's really, it's really hard, I think, for, for folks who are who are raised on vibrators to enjoy sex with other people. No human being is ever going to be able to do that to you. So, And I think that part of early sex education, if we're talking to 14 year old girls, it should be, you know, in addition to safe sex, we should say, and by the way, be careful with those vibrators. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when it comes up, I do say that when people are like, yeah, the talk to me about this. I, I will if it's appropriate, relate my own experience and we'll talk about vibrator addiction and we'll talk about like, yeah, I mean, no, per, no other person's body is ever going to be able to do that for you. And you of course can bring toys into partnered sex. That's great, but it might be worth keeping yourself flexible and open and attuned to other kinds of touch as well. So important. Just because vibrators are very specific. Yeah. Yeah. They're fun. I actually have a harder time at this point in my life getting off with a vibrator than I do without one. That's good. I mean, it's just what it is. It's just what it is. I'm not mad. That's awesome. <laughs> um, Ooh. What? There is one thing that I want to say. Yeah. That, that inter interacts, intersects with all of the sexological work and the sex ed work, which is that in another slice of the pie of my world. I am a self-defense instructor and I teach this very, I, I'm assistant teaching. I'm not a full lead instructor at all. I'm still very much in the backseat and, and helping in every way that I can. A very intense form of self-defense called adrenal stress scenario training, which is what is done by impact. And it's done by the teachers that I work with out here in LA, which is called raw power self-defense, which is an offshoot of impact. They started with impact and it is basically another way of rewiring really quickly. And I frequently cross-refer people that I'm seeing as sexual trauma clients to, to these self-defense classes because it is such a complete reboot of the nervous system around threat and around freezing. And around safety, it sounds like. And around safety that you go into, a, you are in a very safe container in the class and you are put into a scenario where you are essentially role-playing with somebody who is, you know, role-playing being an assailant and they say things that are adrenalizing and then they attack you and you beat the shit out of them and they're fully padded. So you can actually really beat the shit out of them. You can hit them and kick them full force and full speed, which wires into the body in a very different way than like many martial arts type classes where you're like essentially punching the air or doing things so in order to not hurt your opponent, who's often another student. This is an opportunity to actually really fight and to let it be wired in, in an adrenalized moment. And I have seen it be really extraordinary for lots of people who are dealing with um, a very, a very compromised nervous system response. From having been attacked. I, I mean, sometimes people are attacked by strangers and that's a thing, but more often people are just threatened and traumatized by people who are in their lives. That's much more frequent and much more common. And, and you know, like this, the boogeyman on the street, there are not that there are not boogeymen on the street, but it's much more common that people are dealing with assailants who are known to them and are sometimes family members or babysitters or people in whose care they were as kids or partners or whatever. Like there's, that's, that's a much more frequent story. 
but it makes perfect sense to me that then the feeling of being able to keep yourself safe using self-defense and to be able to really create that safety for yourself and, and attack back and keep yourself safe could then allow um, way more room for sexual pleasure than otherwise would have been there if you didn't feel like in a visceral way that you had that ability to keep yourself safe. It translates into every area of life as a very deeply embodied feeling of safety and of the ability in that safety to set appropriate boundaries. And what's it called again? The one that I work with is called Raw Power Self-Defense. And the teacher is a genius named Meredith Gold, who I adore. And there is a nationwide, very similar institution called Impact Self-Defense. And for people who are around the world, um, what are some, I guess, just a physical sort of instead of punching the air or something that might work better if they don't have access? I mean, I think Impact might have international presence. I'm not sure. Um, it grew out of something that was started in the 70s called model mugging. And I don't know, wherever people are, I would look for something that that is adrenal stress scenario training. That's the, that's the, the, the technical term for what we're doing. That's awesome. It's super amazing. Yeah, it sounds amazing. And um, just one more time, just a promise to anyone who's listening who hasn't been able to achieve orgasm and wants to or who hasn't healed from sexual trauma and wants to or who has feels like in some ways they're broken in a way that can't be fixed. I just want to hear you because I think sometimes one of the things that gets in the way is the belief that you can't. Um, and I just, you know, I, I feel like you can, you're someone who really has worked with all kinds of people and can really speak to this. And, and hmm. can you promise people <laughs> listening that they can be, that it's possible and, and give them reason to keep that faith kind of thing? Yeah, it's absolutely possible to heal from anything that has happened. And it isn't, I cannot promise that it's a quick fix or that it's even a fix or that anyone will return to the person that they were before that happened. But I do know that it's possible to integrate those experiences into who you are now and that it's possible for who you are now to be wiser for having had those experiences and to not be cut off from parts of yourself. Like it's very possible for all aspects of experience to return to you. Including pleasure. Absolutely. Including pleasure. Including sexual play. Including sexual play, including the feelings of safety. Yeah. It's all very possible. We are much more malleable and, and self malleable. We are far more capable of metaprogramming ourselves than we, I think, give ourselves credit for. Yeah. Well, if Pam says it, then I know it's true. So hmm. anyone who's having trouble with the belief, just Pam says so. I said so. So it must be true. <laughs> Amazing. It's what I see. Yeah, exactly. That's that's what really you need to. And, and you've seen the worst. Like people don't come to you as a first as a first place to go. You probably are seeing the people that have tried almost everything else. I see people. Yeah, sometimes I see people who have tried everything else and sometimes I see people and I'm the first, you know, I get to be the first one. And I have seen people heal their sexual response from really intense, awful shit that's happened to them all the time. Like that's, I see that all the time. And what if it wasn't traumatic? They just are afraid that they're inorgasmic and they're just born that way. Is that a thing? I've never come across it. No, I've never come across a body that, you know, I've never seen anyone's pleasure response derailed from something that wasn't an uh, experience in their past that was on some level traumatic for them. Which can be healed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah. Scars heal. That's awesome. Yeah. And it's good to hear you say it. Uh, I really appreciate what you're doing because I really think that there's this total secrecy, not even necessarily because it's a secret, but there's no one who talks to people necessarily. We don't all get the benefit of learning about our arousal process from someone who knows and who could help. And it's so... Because when you think about how much time and attention gets sucked away from our focus on what could otherwise be, whether it's our career or things we want to learn or the time we want to spend with friends and family, preoccupation with relating and love and sexuality can really take away from those things if it's not aligned and, and, and working well. Well, it's like a core aspect of identity. All those things, uh, love and relating and sexuality is such a core aspect of how we locate ourselves as humans, like how we identify and how we experience ourselves in an identity among other humans. We're social beings. And I think there's just such a lot of drama. Like we're so, for whatever reason, and I have my theories about why it's so, but I, I think at this time and in this place, human beings are just being actively handicapped in those areas by the way that we relate to those things as a culture, as a society. And that's not true everywhere in the world, but it sure as fuck is true here. You know, you go to Northern Europe and they're starting to offer really very um, age appropriate, but explicit sex ed to kids as young as like six and seven. And it's just a fact of life and people don't have that same kind of drama there. Yeah. You know, it's very, it's a very different world when sex is just in the conversation from really early as just a fact of life and not a big deal. And, all the information is offered freely and people get to make their own choices, you know, in a, in a fairly non-judgmental environment. And not just sex, but everything else we're talking here, the sexuality, the pleasure, the arousal, the that having that control over that aspect of our bodies from as young an age as possible. And it sounds like you're really at the forefront of this work. And it's really so cool to be able to have this talk and to be able to learn from you and hear your perspective and what you're doing. It's so, it's really so incredible. Yeah, I stand on the shoulders of giants, too. I really want to acknowledge my elders in this work. You know, there are people who have been doing the most incredible, beautiful, effective, articulate work in the fields of sex and sexuality who have really who have really raised me. And I'm super grateful to them. And now you're taking it back more to the mainstream. And I hope you just continue to have as wide a reach as possible because it's really important. And uh, And I love it. And I love that we are brought together by our friends. And I'm so glad by the magical unicorn people, the magical unicorn, Justin and Zoe, who mm -hmm. there should be more of them in the world too, which is a whole other conversation for another time. We can go on about it, but yeah. I really want people to be able to find you. So where can women go to learn more? Um, you can find my website, which is chock full of all of the things, which is www.mbodywork.la. Um, I have some writing up on the Foria site, which is a wonderful like weed lube and other weed vagina products company based here in LA. I have some pieces up on their site about self-love and self-touch and vagina mapping and anatomy and self-massage and other things. And there's more coming. And I'm on the social media things. I do the Instagram and I do the Facebook. Although I'm, I'm doing much less of the Facebook right now because I've put myself on a stricter diet. Yeah. And you can email me also. That's also totally good. And the email address 
is mbodyworkla at gmail.com. And do you have any courses for sale or anything like that coming up? I did put up um, a facilitator training for Take Back the Speculum, which a bunch of people now have taken across the country and in a couple of other countries, which is really cool to start doing those groups that I described where they are, which I love. Where can they find that? Um, you have to contact me about that directly and ask for it. But there is a facilitator training for Take Back the Speculum if you are a person who is in community and wants to offer that kind of sex ed in, in your community. Um, that's something that you can contact me about and I will send it to you. Yeah. And I teach in person wherever I am. I teach a bunch in L.A. and and I teach when I travel. I do Take Back the Speculum, which is the one evening thing. I do a teen edition of something called Sex Ed for Grown Ass People for young folks. And I do a practitioner training called the ecstatic body, which is a four day super intensive training, which is I think going to turn into a longer certification program over the next year. Amazing. You're amazing. I'm so glad we got to connect. You're amazing. Ah, Pam. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. So good to be yeah, with you. Absolutely. So good to be with you. I'm excited. This is the start of a long friendship, I hope. Yeah, totally. And I look forward to seeing more of what you do. Likewise. All right, awesome. All right, love. And now I would love to hear from you. Pam and I talked about a lot of things in this episode, but I'm curious, what of the many things we spoke about was the most impactful for you? Head on over to the blog at womenwantingwomen.com and let us know. And if you're interested in finally finding the woman of your dreams, so you could be best friends who learn and grow together and share dreams together and have adventures together and share passionate intimacy together, then there are free resources that can help you on womenwantingwomen.com, including a guide to quickly and easily eliminate rejection from your life, a quiz to find out what qualities the woman of your dreams will find most attractive about you when you meet her, a report that explains the three biggest mistakes most women make when coming out and how to avoid them, and a free matchmaking survey you can fill out in case I already know the woman of your dreams. All of that is free on my website at womenwantingwomen.com. And when you claim your free access to any of those things, you automatically become a Jordana Michelle Insider, which will give you instant access to an email training series I created to help you get on your game to find your soulmate faster and easier, and to help you grow the deepest possible love together once you finally do meet. Plus, you'll get exclusive content and special giveaways and some personal updates from me that I just don't share anywhere else. So go to womenwantingwomen.com and check it out for yourself and share it with any other LGBT women that you think can benefit from what I'm offering there. Until next time, keep remembering that hot lesbians are everywhere, that love is real, and that the woman of your dreams is on her way into your life in perfect timing. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll catch you next time on Women Wanting Women.